0: You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. I had said this evening that we're going to look at what does the Bible say about homosexuality. And I have to say that I, I do this with a tremendous amount of trepidation because it is a subject that seems to be the kind of test subject for so many people in our culture. And I want to lay out some basic ground rules before we start, some presuppositions that uh, I have, that I think the church has, and... uh, it may be that you're, you're here, you're not a Christian. You're saying, well, I don't share those. Well, that's fine. We can argue about those another time. But uh, there are four, really. The first is that we should actually look at this subject at all. There are some Christians who don't think we should, who maybe they wouldn't say it to my face, but they think it, and they would say, I don't want, I want to hear about Jesus. I don't want to hear this obsession that uh, the church has with homosexuality." Well, to be honest, the church, maybe some parts of the church do, but in general, that's not been my experience, and it's not the experience here. I've been here in Dundee, in St. Peter's, for 21 years, and I think I've preached on this subject twice in those 21 years. We are looking at it because it is important. The Bible does have some things to say about it. The second is, uh, presupposition is this, that the intention is not to hurt or to condemn anyone, or to endorse or encourage homophobia. Now, to be correct, homophobia is the fear of homosexuals, or the fear of homosexuality. And there are people who do have that. There's the yuck factor. And I want to just simply say that as Christians, we are not homophobic, and indeed, we should not be and cannot be because Christians should fear nothing or no one. We really shouldn't. We should not be afraid. And I I want to say to anyone who does, and in my experience, there have always been people in church who have come to church for help, who are struggling with different things, that we are here to help. I did a debate with a leading homosexual activist once, and I said to him in the course of the debate, you're welcome in my church any time to which I was really surprised to get a big round of applause. Um, And he was shocked that I said he was welcomed, even though I disagreed with the stance that he was taking. But you are welcome, and we are here to help. The third is this. The Bible is the Word of God, and God, who loves us and knows us best, gave us His Word for a specific purpose. Now, I'll say more about that in a moment, but we are going to look at what the Bible says, not a lots of different theories, but what does the Bible say? And the reason we do so as Christians is because we believe it is the Word of God. And then the fourth thing to say, and it's very important, and you, you must hear this and understand this, all of us are sinners. We cannot say that sexual sin, <clears throat> or especially homosexual sin, is any worse than any other. And it can be true that some Christians will, or people who profess to be Christians, will put sexual sin in a separate category. Now, the Apostle Paul says when we sin sexually, we sin against our own (coughs) bodies as well as against God, but our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But we we should not fall into the trap of assuming that um, sexual sins are worse or treating them as worse than, say, greed or pride, or or other sins like that. So those are the basic ground rules. Uh, Before we go on to look at what the Scripture has to say, there are, uh, and I will, by the way, give an opportunity later on for some uh, questions if you're thinking through this and you're thinking, well, wait wait a minute. What about this? What about this? I want to lay just a little bit of background as well because we're speaking the Word of God into our culture and into our context. And I want to say two things about that. Firstly, the culture is confused. We are a very messed up and mixed up culture. Those of you who are older, and by that I mean over 40, okay? Those of you who are over 40, there is a generational shift here. You would have been, people would have laughed. They would have laughed out loud if in the 1970s or the 1980s or even the 1990s, you had said that not to support same-sex marriage would be considered so illiberal and intolerant, and that teachers could lose their jobs for not doing that, and that uh, churches could be threatened with being sued, and so on. It really is quite an extraordinary cultural shift that has occurred. Um, Our politicians this week, when they were discussing the a same-sex marriage thing in the House of Commons, it was very interesting that you found three older labor MPs. This wasn't publicized. It was all about Tories who rebelled, but three older labor MPs who spoke up very strongly for their traditional <coughs> understanding of marriage. Now, as I say, 20 years ago, virtually everyone would have gone, yeah, of course, what do you mean? What do you, this don't be ridiculous. If you imagine, if you're a younger person, imagine what you feel just now about, let's say, pedophilia. That's what people would have felt 25 years ago about something like homosexual marriage. You say, don't be ridiculous. That is not going to happen. It's not to compare the two, by the way. I get in so much trouble for doing this. But our culture has become very confused. Our uh, leaders, all three leaders, Said, political leaders in Britain said that this would make Britain a happier place. As a result, what's happened is anyone opposed to something like same sex marriage is being perceived as being opposed to homosexuality and therefore evil. I get um, regular hate mail, and I just glanced before I came out, and uh, this was sent to me today. Absolutely pitiful piece of homophobic drivel, how fortunate it is that the views of you religious bigots are being left behind. Sometimes those kind of statements follow along with, uh, it's about time you are eliminated. Well, how did we get here in our culture? In 1967, in other words, when I was five years old, work it out for yourself, uh, homosexuality was actually illegal In America, it was classed as a mental illness that could be treated as a psychiatric illness. A campaign was begun, which was a remarkably successful campaign, which sought to deal with things like homophobic bullying and so on, which I think we would support, but which also sought to do various things, particularly in helping the culture understand about sexuality. And in particular, there was an attempt to remove gender distinctions or confuse gender distinctions, and also to confuse or change the whole way that society viewed sex. Now, there was a theory, and it's not my name. It was the name that these people espoused themselves. They called it queer theory, and they talked about the queering of society. Well, wind forward to 2013, question time in Stirling this week. And Brian Souter just had to mention that he supported traditional marriage, and he was hissed and booed, and the vehemence and the hatred in some of the faces of the young people was really quite extraordinary. And I'm I'm not exaggerating this at all. It is the cultural zeitgeist. And if you I was thinking about this yesterday. I drove down from Inverness listening to Radio 4, and in the course of driving down, I listened to programs, one after the other, on which there was a gay politician, a gay comedian, a gay clergyman, and a gay presenter. Now, for 3% of the population, that's not doing bad. But that is the perspective, and yet all the time, and all our soap operas as well, we are being told that, uh, that anyone who dares question anything and this, is somehow homophobic and responsible for bullying and suicides and so on. This has been going on for a long time, and we have watched it happen. I was involved in student politics in Edinburgh University in the early 1980s, and uh, I remember at the time getting a considerable amount of abuse because I dared to say that I thought the Bible's teaching on human sexuality was correct. So I think our culture is confused, and it's going to get even more confusing. Second thing is the church is confused. Uh, There's a considerable amount of confusion. Let me give you this. This is from Facebook this week. Uh, A well-known Christian says this. So this is really doing my nut in and frustrating me to the max. While I know for the most part that homosexuality is a big no-no for the church and other faiths, I have my own feelings on the matter. I'm sure it'll be way down the list when God pulls me up for all the things I've done in life. However, I haven't been told as a Christian how I should deal with homosexuality, my gay friends, or my mum. So to all the Christians who have it all figured out, could you enlighten me as to the way I could conduct myself? There's confusion in the church. On the other hand, I got another letter this week. Somebody had written a letter to the monthly record of the Free Church complaining about me, because I had written, we should utterly abominate and disown such homophobia. And this man wrote and said, this is ridiculous. If Scripture itself declares homosexuality to be an abomination, then to be homophobic is perfectly in line with biblical thinking. The church is confused. Steve Chalk, a leading evangelical a couple of weeks ago, came out in support of homosexuality and same-sex marriage. Tony Campolo, the well known evangelical speaker, is coming to Dundee with his wife to discuss the subject. She is a psychiatrist, I think, who is for, and he is supposed to be against. The basic argument in the church has been to say the Bible doesn't really say all that much, and what it does say is very, very confusing. And I think, I have to say this to older people who are here, you would be astonished at how confused our younger people are on this issue. And it's because as uh, someone told me this week, they'd grown up in a Christian church, they had heard no teaching about sex or sexuality. That's astounding. It's absolutely astounding that that is the case. And it's little wonder that with the constant propaganda in our culture, the constant pressure that our children and our young people are growing up and thinking, wait a minute, this surely the Bible or the church has got it wrong. Now, as I said, we do not want to be the homophobic bigots. We just want to ask simply, what does the Bible have to say? And again, to quote um, a letter I got yesterday, you take your morality from a 2,000-year-old book, hence your opposition to homosexuals having equal rights. Well, I understand you saying that. If you are not a Christian, you think that's all that this book is. But for believers, for Christians, this is the Word of God. And I by the way I am not going to argue with Christians who say yeah it's the word of god in this bit but not in that bit the whole bible is the word of god jesus took the whole old testament as the word of god and the new testament he said was inspired by his holy spirit it's all the word of god now in understanding it interpreting it that's sometimes more difficult but nonetheless the bible is we take as the Word of God, and we do not go necessarily along with the latest theories, the latest zeitgeist, whatever the culture and the society says. In that sense, actually as Christians, we ultimately are rebels. So let me come to the Bible passages. I'm going to look at all of the ones that deal with homosexuality. Uh, There aren't many. The Bible doesn't have that much to say. But I want to start with one that's a very basic one, And you may think it's got nothing to do with homosexuality, but let me explain. Genesis 2, 18 to 25. Right at the beginning, the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took, off, uh, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, "'This is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man.' For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they'll become one flesh.' the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, there's a lot actually in there, but the basic thing is this, that in terms of companionship, God designed the human race that male and female would be together, and particularly in terms of physical union. I have no desire, and I'm not going to be crude whatsoever, but the fact is, that the male and female body are made for one another, there is a, a marvelous book by Thomas Schmidt, and I have several of these books that i 've ordered, and they will be available uh, for you to <coughs> to get um, within the next couple of weeks and this one by thomas schmidt it 's a, a classic it 's called "Straight and Narrow," in which he looks at all the medical at all the biblical at all the philosophical and cultural. Uh, reasons behind uh, homosexuality and what the Bible teaches and so on. But here, the straightforward teaching is this. Marriage and sex were from the beginning. The Bible does not teach that sex is dirty. It teaches that it is special, that it should be between a man and a woman and should be in the context of marriage, that the purpose of marriage is mutual companionship and procreation of and bringing up of children. Now, that is fundamentally countercultural in our culture. Our culture largely sees sex as recreational. You have an appetite. You're hungry, you feel like fish and chips, you go get fish and chips. You have a sexual appetite, go out clubbing, go and sleep with someone. So what? And that is regularly boasted about And it's regularly implied and taught. The most important thing that so many of our children are taught is that if you're going to have sex, make sure it's safe. And that's entirely in terms of a physical. But the Bible would teach that sex is much more than just physical, and that it's not actually safe to have sex outside of marriage. It was extraordinary in the parliamentary debate about same sex marriage that one politician stood up, in fact, a senior politician stood up and said that marriage had very little to do with children. And incidentally, with the Same-Sex Marriage Act, uh, it has very little to do with sex as well, because you cannot now be divorced. Uh, If you're heterosexual, you can, but if you're homosexual, you cannot be divorced for unfaithfulness in sexual terms, because they weren't able to define what consummating a marriage would be in homosexual terms. That's how confused we've become. We've now had a government and an opposition who are telling us that marriage has really got nothing to do with sex and nothing to do with children. And those were the two primary purposes that the Bible indicates that they were for. Now, what's important about this passage is this this is saying to all of us, heterosexuals and homosexuals, that all sex out with the context of a loving commitment in marriage, is wrong. That is the biblical perspective. And I do find it somewhat disturbing that you'll get Christians who get really hit up about how homosexuality is wrong, and then they turn a blind eye to adultery or to uh, Christians who sleep around. I think that. Uh, we have to be very, very careful to be very balanced. And that the basis for what we're saying comes from this passage in Genesis 2. The next passage is, um, <coughs> sorry, Genesis 19. I'm not going to read it. It's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And I spelled that. Look how I spelled that. We're completely wrong. But <coughs> that's the story of uh, how... Um, the men of Sodom wanted to rape uh, the men or the angels. They didn't know they were angels who were visiting uh, Lot. And from that has come the notion of homosexuality as sodomy and so on. Now, you have to be, again, really fair and really careful here. The Bible itself explains what the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was, and it wasn't primarily homosexuality. Ezekiel 16, 49, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you have seen. I think you will find that when a society and a community moves away from God, part of what happens is sexuality and sex becomes very confused. But another part of that, and this is all tied together, is that the poor are oppressed and really, really suffer. But Sodom and Gomorrah is not primarily really a text about homosexuality. That cannot be said for these two verses in Leviticus, which are often quoted, do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman, that is detestable. And Leviticus twenty thirteen: if a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable, they must be put to death, their blood will be on their heads. Now, when these verses are quoted, people will, and I would normally say, please do not quote these verses in terms of explaining the Bible's position on homosexuality, because you have to do a lot of explaining. When these verses are quoted, people then come out with, oh yes, but you have mixed fabric, or you eat shellfish, or there are other laws which appear in the Levitical laws which would now appear ridiculous to us. Now, that's a huge question in itself, but let me offer you some guidelines on how we look at this. Basically, we follow the teaching of our confession of faith, which divides the law into ceremonial, civil, and moral. Ceremonial is like Aaron's hat. Um, the, The moral, the Ten Commandments, and so on, the civil were the laws that were given to the government, the theocratic state of Israel. And some of these, they can cross over, uh, some of the food laws uh, and so on, but most of them, except in general principle, now no longer apply. The Bible does not tell us that we are to put homosexuals to death. The Bible does tell us, though, that sex outside marriage, marriage between a man and a woman, is wrong. Then we come into the New Testament And there are three passages. Uh, Let me just mention two of them. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God homosexual offenders. There's a, a, a new kind of reading into Scripture which kind of says, well, that's really referring to temple prostitutes. It's not referred to loving homosexual relationships. That really is a case of very, very special pleading and trying to read back into the Bible what is not there. I think this verse is actually a hugely encouraging verse to all of us. You could be greedy, drunkard, a slanderer, a swindler, a prostitute, sexually immoral, an idolater. But look at verse 11. That is what some of you were. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Our culture says you can't change. You can't change your sexuality, you can't change your lifestyle, you can't change. You're stuck. The Bible says you can change. Or, let me put it another way, the Bible says you can be changed. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know many Christians who are homosexuals. I know Christians who are homosexuals and who have, who were homosexuals and who have actually changed, are now married, they have children and so on. There's been a change in that, in them. But I know other Christians who are homosexuals and who remain homosexuals. If you uh, can at all, I would recommend that you (coughs) Google Vaughan Roberts, uh, read his article from Evangelicals Now. I think he's also given a couple of talks on this. Vaughan Roberts is the vicar of St. Ebbs in Oxford. He is a fine and brilliant uh, biblical preacher. He is a lovely Christian, and he is a homosexual. And he says he holds to the Bible's teaching that he will be celibate for the rest of his life. He doesn't seek therapy. <coughs> he knows he has to deal with temptation. As he explains in his article, he has an accountability group, but his following Jesus Christ is much more important to him than the identity that some people would want to give him as a homosexual. 1 Timothy 1, to 9-11, in a similar vein, we know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers, and perverts, for slave traders, and liars, and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. And the word that's translated there in the NIV for perverts is a word that is again used uh, homosexual offenders. And that's just saying it's contrary to what the Bible teaches but by far the most important verse, in my view, in the whole Bible, is from Romans 1. Uh, and I want to read all of this, Romans 1, 26. It's talking about how, how human beings know about God, are aware of God, but we turn away from God. And then Paul says this, "'Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women.' and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Now, again, there are people like Steve Chalk who desperately, desperately want to avoid what is said here plainly, and so they say, This cannot refer to Christians who are homosexuals and who are living a a Christian lifestyle but while being practicing homosexuals because it says they are uh, senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless, and Christians are not like that. But that really is to read it out of context. Paul is saying to Roman society and to Roman culture, to the Christians who are living in that culture, this is what it is like, this is what you're seeing, and to argue that neither the Romans nor the Greeks really knew what homosexuality was is really quite bizarre. But you'll note what is being said here. This passage does not teach us that God punishes people for being homosexual, for being homosexual. It says that the homosexuality is itself the punishment. When human beings say, we don't need God or His laws, when human beings say, what are you doing listening to a 2,000-year-old book? What a bunch of bigots you are. We can live without God. When our parliaments and our leaders tell us, we don't need the Bible, we'll just make it up ourselves as we go along according to the current theories, the current zeitgeist, or whoever's in, in power, the worst thing that can absolutely happen is for God to become what I call the Burger King God. Have it your own way. Have it any way that you like. The worst thing that God could do for us is for God to say, okay, you want that? You've got it. You have it. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, this is the judgment when God withdraws His restraining hand, when God turns His back on people and lets people just get on with what they want. It doesn't lead us to nirvana. It doesn't lead us to a happier and more tolerant society. It leads to disaster. My particular concern about the the same-sex marriage debate, and so on, it's not about winning a debate. It's not about oppressing homosexuals. I'll tell you what it's about. It's about people like, if you go on YouTube, Ralph, who's in this Part of this congregation, well, he's now down in Nidri. And uh, Mez McConnell has just posted a, a new video there with Ralph. And Ralph gives his testimony. And he was getting along fine as a kid in the housing estate until what? Until his parents split up. When our culture has turned away from God and has turned sex into recreation and ignored God's teaching about children and the family and sexuality, we've ended up with absolute disaster. The state cannot and never will parent. Parents are to parent. But we are really getting into an enormous mess with this. Let me suggest something to you, and please, again, if if you're older, please do not be offended. This is where we are going. You have to understand this. There will be pressure on teachers to encourage children to try before you buy, as I've heard it explained. Someone rather more technically said, you need to experiment with your sexuality. Maybe you're a 14-year-old boy, and you know, you're really struggling with feelings of loneliness and angst, and you've got zits, and you know, as, as 14-year-old boys do, you worry, and then someone says, well, maybe it's your sexuality. And isn't it interesting how it's no longer about homosexuality, it's always LGBT, lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender. And there are more people who claim to be bisexual." Than there are who would say that they're homosexual, and it's going to be incredibly difficult because that if you you won't have probably read the government's bill, but eventually it's going to do away with terms like mother and father. It'll be parent one and parent two. And just now, this week already, there are three things that occurred that show you how it, how confusing it's going to get. In Florida, in Canada, and in the Netherlands legislation is currently being drawn up for children to have three or more parents. How is that possible? Because you have the sperm donor and you maybe have the two mums, or the two dads or you might have others. It is incredibly, incredibly confusing. And it's what will happen to us. It's not that we've become a more tolerant and a more open and a more generous and a more loving and a more compassionate society. We will become more confused and we will do so much more harm. Now, let me go on to Jesus, because some people say, well, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. Uh, well, he did, actually. We're coming back to where we started, Genesis 1, Matthew 19, to 12. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Some crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way, others were made that way by men, and others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Now, please note what Jesus teaches. I'll just list it Jesus teaches that marriage is between a man and a woman. The two who become one flesh are a man and a woman. Two men do not become one flesh, and two women do not become one flesh. Jesus teaches that that marriage is intended to be permanent and for life. Jesus teaches that for some people that is difficult, indeed, if not impossible. There are some people who should not get married, who will not get married, and who could not get married. Jesus also teaches and shows that sex and marriage are not the be-all and end-all of identity. When someone says, my identity is my sexuality, and therefore I should be able to marry whoever I want because that is so important, a Christian has to turn in and say, wait a minute, Jesus was never married. Was Jesus less than human? Did Jesus not live a satisfied and fulfilling life? Marriage is a great blessing for many, many people. Being single Is a great blessing as well for some people. And the fifth thing I think to say about Jesus is this He invites all of us, whatever our sexual identity or how we we feel our sexual identity is, to come to Him. The bottom line is you do not go to hell because you're a homosexual any more than you get to heaven because you're heterosexual. That's not the issue. The issue is where we are at in terms of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, let me give you just a finish with the, the story of this woman, Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. Now, I, I, if you're interested in this subject, I so recommend this book. This book, if you get it on Kindle, it's just absolutely brilliant. I've got several other books coming up, but this one uh, I loved. She's uh, Bizarre, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, An English Professor's Journey into Christian Faith. She was a lesbian teacher of gay and diversity studies in a liberal university in the United States. And by the end of the book, she is married to a Presbyterian minister, a Reformed Presbyterian minister, uh, adopting kids and uh, somewhat bizarrely actually arguing for exclusive samadhi and homeschooling. But it's a, it's a fascinating, fascinating book. And I love it. She writes so well and expresses it so well. But what is really interesting this is not a book that says, I was a lesbian and I was really horrible and then I became a Christian and everything was wonderful. She talks about the benefits she got from being in the gay community and it's very thoughtful, very interesting. For example, let me give you just a couple of ideas. Um, one quote. That morning, February 14th, 1999, and by the way, you can Google her as well, there's a huge long interview with her. Uh, in christianity magazine i emerged from the bed of my lesbian lover and an hour later we're sitting in a pew at the syracuse reformed presbyterian church i share this detail with you not to be lurid but merely to make the point you never know the terrain someone else has walked to come worship the lord see there are people who'd say okay oh, dave i couldn't go to your church because you you wouldn't welcome homosexuals no that's not true i don't know what the sexuality is of everybody here i don't ask It's not my concern. My concern is that people come to know Jesus Christ, and I think it would be horrible, really, really horrible, if anyone who was homosexual felt that they were unwelcome in this place. One of Rosaria's um, gay friends, many of whom gave her up after she became a believer, said this, Rosaria, if people in my church really believed that gay people could be transformed by Christ, they wouldn't talk about us or pray about us in the hateful way that they do. We have to be really careful that we do not hate people because of their sexuality. We have to be really careful that we do not condemn people because of that. She talks about how in her community, in the, the lesbian community, gay, bisexual, transgender community that uh, they used to have bumper stickers that were a um, kind of mockery of Christianity. One was, I thought this I did actually think this was quite amusing, but I killed a gay whale for Christ was one of them. And the other one was, Lord, protect me from your people. And Rosaria goes to point on, why is it that in the church we tend to be more fearful of the perceived sin in the world than of the sin in our own heart? Why is that? Why are you depressed about what's going on in the wider culture, and fearful of what's going on in the wider culture, and you never look at what's going on in your own heart. I'm going to say that to those of us who are Christians. It, what's going on in us, in some ways, in many ways, is far more serious. But I think another aspect of her story that I most wanted to share was this. She's talking about how we, we share with and how we minister to people who are, who are different, And how more different do you get than a a lesbian feminist professor of English studies in the United States meeting with a, a Presbyterian minister and his wife? This is what she says, Ken and Floyd did not identify with me. They listened to me and identified with Christ. They were willing to walk the long journey to me in Christian compassion. It is possible for a Christian to have gay friends, to love their gay friends, to care for their gay friends, not to patronize their gay friends, and to hold to our Christian convictions and to love people and to pray for people, not trying to brainwash people or twist people or, or manipulate people, but just to show the compassion and love of Jesus Christ. And you can do that without compromising your faith, and without compromising your beliefs. You're not saying to people, look, I'm just like you, but what you're saying is, I follow Jesus Christ, and I want to show you Jesus Christ, and I want to live Jesus Christ for you. Honestly, I would highly, highly recommend that book.